Caitlin Collins, I mean, this is something that the, the team around the former president has been expecting, uh, certainly on, on this night. Yeah, he has two different attorneys than most people would probably recognize representing him, specifically in Georgia. I mean, there are so many different indictments that he kind of has a different legal team for each of them. And we're waiting to see what they're hearing themselves. I mean, we're watching this process happen as the paperwork is being delivered to the judge, those findings there. You know, we don't actually have confirmation that it was the indictment. We believe it was. But Trump's team is waiting just as we are. I mean, they kind of have an expectation of what to do once he is informed that he is indicted, if that is what happens here. They certainly believe that he is going to be one of those names potentially indicted. But his legal team has obviously uh, just been watching this as closely as anyone else has, as we are, to see when this actually happens, when they are actually notified of it. I will say one thing that I do believe is going to be different here, beyond the fact that we were just able to watch that moment there, which in and of itself we have not seen with the other indictments, is that we do believe there's an expectation we would likely hear from the district attorney here. That is the same district attorney that Trump has been attacking. And what I have heard is from seeing these other indictments happen, where Trump has kind of been the first person to come out and present his side of it. Um, it seems like that time that time span is getting shorter and shorter with each indictment. And instead, we are hearing from the prosecutors earlier on. We certainly did with Jack Smith in the last indictment. There is certainly a potential that we would hear some something from Fonnie Willis here, someone who, I should note, in recent days had to email her staff and say, ignore the attacks, focus on the work, keep your head down, because there have been these persistent and repeated attacks from Trump. But as for his team itself and how they're preparing for this, I mean, this isn't their first indictment, and they were expecting this. And so they do have surrogates and allies ready to go. But I do think it is notable that his legal troubles are certainly piling up. I'm told it's something that is very clear when you're around Trump and his inner circle. You know, he's been out in public recently at Iowa at the Live Golf Tournament that he had as, at his course. But so many people around hey, uh, him Kayla, are I'm, I'm sorry, there. I just have to interrupt. i got to go to Sarah Murray. Sarah, what's happening? So we are learning that the grand jury has returned multiple indictments. We're learning that there were 10 indictments. Again, this is based on the paperwork that has been returned, that has made its way into the clerk's office. We are still waiting for the official release of these indictments. So we're still waiting, essentially, for the names who are named here. We know, obviously, that Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis went into this intending to seek charges against former President Donald Trump and a number of his allies. We don't yet know who is named in these indictments, what the details are of these indictments, but we do know from the paperwork that the, the grand jury returned 10 indictments, guys. And do you have a sense of, of the when we will get more details? Will those come, do you think, from Phony Willis if she chooses to speak tonight, as, as would may perhaps seem likely? Or will that be will more become clear as that uh, as the document is seen online? Well, I think two things need to happen. I mean, first of all, these indictments need to be processed. They need to be stamped by the clerk. Um, potentially in order for Fonnie Willis to speak freely about what the grand jury has actually returned today. And it's a little unclear how long that will take. Again, we're past 9 p.m., so we're well past when most of the clerk's office staff would be here to assist them in processing that. So we don't know exactly how long it's going to take for these full indictments to be made public, and that it's possible that we could hear remarks from Fonnie Willis on this case. Again, she spent two and a half years investigating this. This is clearly something that they felt like they could do in one day before the grand jury. And they obviously got some bang for their buck today because the grand jury approved 10 indictments. And now we're sort of waiting to see what the timing is going to be like for us to actually see the meat of what is in those.
senior legal, legal analyst at LA Honig. What do you make, ten indictments? What do you read into that? Important piece of news there, Anderson, because anytime you have a case with multiple defendants like this one, there's a key strategic decision you have to make as a prosecutor, which is, are we going to indict everyone all together on one indictment? Or are we going to break it up either into individual indictments or smaller groups? And the fact that we, we are now hearing that it's 10 different indictments tells me they've gone for the latter approach. One of the strategic benefits of sort of stripping out your, in, your defendants into individual or separate indictments is it does enable you to get any one of those indictments to trial more quickly. Because if you have 10 people together on one indictment, that's a huge undertaking that's going to take quite a while to get to trial. If you have one person charged individually, that's much quicker to get to trial. So I think there's a streamlining consideration happening here. So 10 indictments, does that mean 10 individuals or could there be multiple indictments per individual? So the way I understand that is there are 10 separate charging instruments, 10 separate documents. You could see one person in each indictment. You could see two, three, four people in each indictment. But the way I understand Sarah's reporting, if there's 10 different indictments, that means you have a minimum of 10 people, but you could have more. You could have, for example, one indictment with one person, another one with three. They might have chopped it up into sort of substantive blocks here. Could you see the same person charged in more than one of those indictments? Yes, theoretically, but that would be a very confusing way to charge this. I don't expect that's how the DA has done it. Hey, Charlie, would you just repeat that, please? I'm told the paperwork indicates that the grand jury did not vote against any of the indictments presented to it on Monday. So that's as expected, Anderson. In other words, the grand jury will either vote yes or no on each indictment by a majority vote. That's all that's required in the grand jury, 12 out of 23. And to build off that reporting, that tells us that the grand jury voted yes on all of the indictments that were presented to it. Sometimes, very rarely, but sometimes a grand jury will vote what we call no true bill, meaning we are not indicting. But it sounds like the reporting that you just repeated is that the grand jury voted yes to indict everyone who was presented to it. Yeah. Uh, we're uh, joined now by, seeing, uh, by Jake Tapper in Washington. Let's go to him. Jake. Thanks, Anderson. Uh, appreciate it. Um, so um, I am uh, here with my uh, panel, uh, which includes Abby Phillip, Gloria Borger, Jamie Gangel, Laura Coates, uh, and Andy uh, McCabe. Uh, and right now, let's start with the, the legal analyst we have on, on, the, on the panel. Um, right now, we are waiting to hear who got indicted. Is it your assumption that these are 10 indictments for 10 different individuals or or are you not going to say you don't know well it's not entirely clear but if it was let's play both out if it is 10 different individuals then you're going to have 10 separate potential trials which of course means that you're going to have issues with the efficiency if the underlying factual predicate for everything means that they could all be tried together you're going to have delays that otherwise would not be there if it's all together you have the delay of every single duck trying to get in a row and every different defense attorney assigned to each particular person trying to figure out who get an advantage and who does not what's so significant here though is the way this has happened People have expected this for quite some time. The fact that it's taken place in a day might confuse some people in terms of the voting. What happens is a presentation of a closing argument, if you will. As the prosecutor, you go in and you say, here's all the evidence I have before you. You essentially say to them, here are the potential charges I'd like you to consider. You are going to line up the facts, the data, the testimony that you've already come in, and you're going to line it next to each individual element of a particular crime. And you're going to say to them, 
I'd like you to vote on these charges. And you do it in such a concise and methodical way as to leave no room for error that they can have a finding of probable cause. That's all this is. It is not beyond a reasonable doubt, but it is very difficult to have the breadth of information over multi-years, to have a grand jury who's been meeting for months and months, if not longer, to try to keep their own individual notebooks of everything. You're going to present it to the jury and you're going to say, here is what I'm asking for you to do. The fact that there was not a single indictment that was voted against leads me to believe that there was substantial evidence to support the probable cause finding. It was done in a clear and compelling way. They had the proverbial horse's mouths to actually testify to different things. And this is, of course, not in a vacuum, is it? Georgia and the magnifying glass over Georgia has been there for quite a long time. Well, and a lot of this just played out in front of the cameras or by the press. For example, what I would imagine, uh, Jamie Gingell, is one of the main exhibits is the complete audio tape of Trump calling the secretary of state and telling him to find I think it's 11,780 votes. Mm -hmm. I think that's the number. That that is correct. Okay, thank you so much. And most important. Only one more. One more than, than was needed. needed. Right. But that's something that we learned uh, because uh, somebody in Raffensperger's office, presumably, gave the recording to the Washington Post. And we learned that almost two years ago. And every time we hear that recording, it's as if it's the first time. Yeah, it's shocking I mean, every it time. Is, it, it is stunning. Look, to, to Laura's point about we expected this, uh, I think it was about a week or 10 days ago that Fonnie Willis said we're ready to go. Clearly, she was ready to go. We don't know all the names of the people who were indicted, but certainly Donald Trump and people around him think he is one of the people. Look, in addition to that recording, I I just think it's worth knowing that reminding people that Georgia, there were Donald Trump and his allies put pressure on a lot of states, but nowhere the way he did in Georgia. And when you look at the evidence, we're told there are the recordings, texts, emails, documents, and there are the false electors. What don't we know yet? We don't know who cooperated. We don't know whether Mark Meadows or or others cooperated. Let's go to the Fulton County Courthouse right now, if we can, just to check in with our reporter on the ground there, Sarah Murray. Sarah, um, do we have any idea when we're actually going to see these indictments? Well, Jake, we're waiting to see. We're told from our colleagues who are in the clerk's office right now that, again, the clerk has confirmed that the grand jury returned 10 indictments, would not say who was indicted, and when asked about the timeline for getting copies of this indictment, said, worst case scenario, three hours. So we're hoping that truly is a worst case scenario, that we're not waiting here for three hours to see the guts of of what is in this indictment. Uh, And they can move a little speedily than that. I think my sense is the district attorney's office would certainly like to move quicker than this being made public in the next three hours. But again, it takes a little bit for them to actually be able to process this document, to stamp it. It's clear they do want to be able to make it widely public, um, but it's not clear at this point, how long that's going to take. Right. Although they are working through the night, right? I mean, that was one of the things that was interesting about this evening is that normally the grand jury at five o'clock, like the whistle at the beginning of the Flintstones, they 
runoff. That's an old dated reference. I apologize for the, for the younger viewers. But the idea that the work day is done at 5 o'clock and you go home. But today they did not do that, and that was unusual, right? Oh, that was absolutely unusual. I mean, we've been at this courthouse, I can't tell you how many times, and it's a no man's land when you get past 5 o'clock. Not only, you know, if the judge is left for the day, but the clerk and the clerk's staff has left for the day. This was a very clearly concerted effort to keep staff around in order to be able to do this this evening. You know, Judge Robert McBurney, who's the presiding judge this week, gave reporters who spent all day in his courtroom a number of updates, essentially saying, you know, I'm still sticking around. The courthouse closes at five. I'm still going to be here. It was very clear in the clerk's office that while a number of people were leaving today, that there was still some staff that was staying behind in anticipation uh, of the grand jury handing up these indictments. So this is a very different feel and a, certainly a very different timeline uh, from what we're used to seeing out of this courthouse. All right, Sarah Murray, uh, you let us know when to come back to you. Let's uh, continue with my panel. I want to go to Andy McCabe, if I can, just because uh, you're somebody who is more familiar with the grand jury process uh, than all of us, except uh, for Laura Coates, of course. <laughs> what, are, what are you uh, thinking right now? Do you think these are 10 indictments of 10 different people or 10 indictments of one person? Or you're not going to guess? It's t tough to make a guess. Okay. I think it's I think it's uh, and I wouldn't rule out seeing some indictments with multiple uh, multiple folks on them. So if, for instance, a particular activity, let's say the fake electors is condensed into one indictment and you have multiple fake electors. all. Oh, so it might be 10 that. indictments for the, the, the number is the crimes. You could, you could organize them by content. You could organize them by individual. If you have three individuals who are involved in the exact same uh, uh, conduct, it would make sense to put them together on, for instance, on one indictment. So I don't think we can automatically assume it's exactly 10 people at this point. Yeah, we've been told that nearly uh, 20 people were informed that they could face some kind of charges. So that's 20. <laughs> There. And then we also know, for example, there was this meeting of these uh, pro-Trump Republicans, 16 of them, who had this discussion about casting the fake electoral votes for him. So that's 16 people there. So um, false statements made by uh, the president's, the former president's lawyers, of which there are many. Um, so again, it's hard to kind of guess how this was organized. It's like writing a story. Which is, the, which is the best way to organize the story? We know the lead, but, but kind of which is the best way to make it clearer to people that there are multiple charges that perhaps multiple people participated in? And this is, with all of these indictments, the, the most important part for the public, which mm -hmm. is what, what kind of story, to your point, do they actually tell? In Georgia, as Jamie was saying, this was probably the state where there was the most concerted effort at all levels of government, from the, the governor, the lieutenant governor, the secretary of state, all the way down to individual election workers who were targeted with intimidation. It was the slimmest and, margin of victory also, was it not? It, it was, I of, mean... Of the battleground states? It, it depends, of the battleground states, but yes, it yeah. was. Yes. But, but the reason I hesitated to even respond to that is because we're talking about t over 10,000 votes. That's a right. lot, that's actually a lot of votes uh, that, <laughs> that Trump was down by, and yet they still uh, pursued this 
strategy of trying to basically fraudulently overturn an election in that state. Uh, but as it relates to the story in the indictment, they really do have to show what is the connection between all of these different storylines that have been playing out that we know a little bit about. And if that connection goes all the way up to the White House and to former President Trump, uh, that's the crux of the matter. That is why Georgia matters so much, because it is kind of um, unlike the January 6th case, which is sort of centered on the broad scope of things. This is almost like a case study of how to try to steal an election and luckily how they failed. Uh, but the, the indictment needs to show kind of what that connection is between all of these different uh, schemes that were out there that we do know something about. And, and by the way, um, the, the viewing and consuming public has seen an indictment recently about election-related interference. Right. And although there is absolutely no requirement there be any coordination or even conversation between Fonnie Willis and, of course, Jack Smith, the public has already seen one. And so there might be a temptation to think this has got to be different from that. Otherwise, why would you have a separate jurisdiction other than Jack Smith's overseeing of the investigation? Well, simple matter is that's a federal case that Jack Smith has. This is a state level case. Why is that so significant? Well, state cases, one can't pardon one from that if you're in the White House. Were he to become were he to president. Become president yeah. Or actually, if some of the candidates who've already vowed that they would indeed pardon him if they were to become the RNC nominee and eventual president, that also would not immediately apply to any of that as well. And so you've got this overarching thing. And then one more point politically, Georgia is significant because... These weren't like Democrats that he was trying to convince otherwise to say, I want to find one more than a Democratic candidate. This is Brad Raffensperger. This is the general counsel as well. What was his name? Ryan um, Germany, the former GC of the Secretary of State. This was the actual Republican governor as well, Brian Kemp, all of you who rejected the actual pressure campaign, which is really the crux of the entirety of it. And so the, the arguments that would suggest oh, I couldn't get a fair jury here, like the ones they're talking about in D.C., might not apply for different reasons. So, Jamie, one of the other things that's interesting about this, obviously, is we can't ignore the political ramifications of it, uh, which is the fact that Donald Trump uh, is far and away uh, likely to be the Republican presidential candidate based on nominee, uh, based on today's facts, right. anyway. Uh, and right now is polling at 43% against uh, Joe Biden's 43% in the, in the latest New York Times poll. Um, I asked Mark Short, uh, Vice President Pence's uh, chief of staff earlier today, do you think the fourth indictment of Donald Trump is going to have an impact? Uh, and what he said is that there is a difference. He, he acknowledged that the indictments have had a rallying effect to help Trump in the Republican primaries. But he said there is a difference between this period and uh, of, of this jurisprudence and the period where there is actual information presented in a court of law where Donald Trump is a defendant and day after day after day, damning testimony uh, is presented against him. Now, that might be wishful thinking, but they are two different things. So one thing that may not be wishful thinking, and we don't know when these trials are going to happen. Donald Trump has not yet been named in this one. But uh, in addition to in Georgia, you couldn't pardon yourself. There are cameras in the courtroom That's in right. Georgia. That's right. And I think that has a very different effect. Think back to the New York indictment where we just had the still photographs of Donald Trump sitting there at the table. It had a different feel. We have not seen that in D.C. We didn't see it in Florida. That said, 
the Republican base, the pro-Trump Republican base, has not seemed swayed thus far. And, and this Georgia case could go after the election. Well, look, people, voters are going to have to make up their mind. They're probably not going to get conclusive uh, verdicts in all of these cases, certainly. But in a case like this, with this scope, uh, a, a state-level case, you could be looking at a long period of time. They're going to have to make up their minds based on the allegations contained in this document, which is why the indictment itself is so important. Obviously, the process, when it plays out from a legal perspective, is critically important, what happens to Donald Trump. But for the voters, they may not have the benefit of a verdict and a conclusion before they have to decide whether he's going to be the Republican nominee or he's going to be potentially the next president of the United States. Right. The, I mean, the Iowa caucus votes uh, are January, January, 15, January yeah. 15th, uh, which is certainly uh, well so far, before the earliest the trial hearing is Can I say the other candidates have to make up their minds, too, yeah. <laughs> about, well, the, yeah, about how they're going to treat this. It's not just the voters out there. And, and by the way, I believe it's up to the discretion of the judge about whether you televise. You can televise in Georgia. But let's see what, what the presiding judge would, would want to do. But the other candidates have to kind of fish or cut bait at some point. And if this is going to be televised, and some of the candidates have been tiptoeing around Donald Trump, et cetera, they have to decide what tack they take. All right, I want to throw to uh, Caitlin Collins right now. Caitlin? Uh, Jake, and joining us now is CNN contributor Jeff Duncan, who is the former Republican lieutenant governor of the state of Georgia. And tonight, a witness before that grand jury today. Jeff, uh, what do you think, what role do you think your testimony played in these 10 indictments that we are learning about now? Well, I certainly answered the questions that they gave me with and supplied them with the facts and details that I knew uh, existed. And, uh, you know, that that's what this is all about, is just getting the facts to the surface. I mean, finally, it's taken two and a half years to, to move past all of this uh, misinformation and all of these conspiracy theories. The facts uh, will rise to the top. And, and thankfully, it's taken us to this point here now. What was it like, I mean, to even be in that room today? Was it intense? I mean, how would you describe it? Yeah, it certainly felt like the center of the universe. I mean, there was no doubt in my mind, it was a very serious uh, tone, a very prepared tone. No, everybody in the room uh, knew, knew why they were there to, to, to weigh the facts and present the facts. And of course, my, my job was to answer the questions. Uh, it was very, very serious, no doubt. We saw several other witnesses also going in and out today to, to presumably testify. Can you just give us a ballpark of how many other witnesses were, were waiting to go in when you were there? I'd prefer to let the district attorney answer that question. I just pro probably not, not the right time for me to answer that. From the questions they asked, did you get a sense that, that they have a real understanding of the entire scheme of everything that was happening here? Yeah, there was certainly a firm grasp of what the details were, right? And just wanting to confirm information, connections, all of that stuff around all the different scenarios, you know, and this isn't specifically speaking about my testimony today, but I've been, you know, I've literally, like I told you the other night, I, I've written a book about this, right? So, uh, you know, connecting these dots on, on all these wild, far-fetched conspiracy theories, connecting the dots on how you get to a point to, that Brad Raffensperger's, you know, the phone call happens with him, how you get fake electors, how you have you know, mock hearings that, that are presented as though they're real and serious. Uh, th there's a whole trail of, of information that I think uh, America is going to get to see. And quite honestly, as a Republican that wants to see us win going forward, we need to use this as a pivot point, right? But we have to take this moment serious. This can't just be about the case. This can't just be about a trial. As a Republican, 
party. We need to take this as an opportunity to move on. And, and look, it's going to take a team effort here. All these candidates that are out there running can't just kind of stick their toes in the water and kind of call Donald Trump out for lying. They can't just kind of call him out for the election wasn't really rigged. They need to fully jump into it and say, you know what, this is wrong. We need senators. We need governors. We need everybody to get on board and not only say that Donald Trump's wrong, but Donald Trump needs to get out of this race. It's best for the Republican Party. And ultimately, it's best for this country if he's not in this race in 2024. Well, I mean, speaking of Donald Trump, he posted about you today saying that you shouldn't go and testify. He talked about how you refused his demands to to call a special session. I mean, beyond the fact he also spelled your name wrong. I mean, did you see that is an effort for to witness tamper, or how did you view that post from him? Well, I faced much tougher opponents in my life than Donald Trump. I'm certain of that. Uh, and secondly, uh, you spelled Jeff with a G, not a J. Um, I got there on time. I was ready to testify. Nothing he was going to say was going to deter me. And quite honestly, I've been playing this game for two and a half plus years. This isn't the first time he's tweeted at me. This isn't the first time he's spoken down uh, to me or, or many others, right? It's just his game. He's He's you know, he's a small man and a big job, and, and he just gets to put that on display every minute of every day. But what kind of effect do you think that has on on other witnesses? I mean, you're going into that room today. You're the former lieutenant governor of the state. You're someone who is used to the public eye. I mean, there are other witnesses that we know that have gone that, that certainly aren't in that same position that you are. I mean, do you believe that he's he's trying to pressure witnesses here? Well, I don't know what Donald Trump's game is. I, I've stopped guessing what his game is. Look, it certainly was uncalled for. If I was one of his attorneys, I can't imagine they would they would have enjoyed waking up to watching him send what he sent in my direction today. I mean, it doesn't make the, comp, the situation any easier. And Caitlin, by the way, this makes the math continuing to be impossible if you want to win as a Republican, right? I mean, you can throw red meat to the crowd and get 35, 40, maybe 50 percent of Republicans to kind of sort of support you. But you lose the game when you try to jump in and try to beat a Democrat like Joe Biden. This should be the easiest election for us to win in decades, maybe maybe in a century. But yet we, we can't even break break the strings of gravity because Donald Trump is the wrong candidate, just like uh, Herschel Walker was the wrong candidate. I mean, this is so easy to see coming. Uh, we can't just just try to win primaries. we got to win generals. But do you believe that this is, I mean, this would be the fourth indictment if Trump's name is on that list of, of 10 indictments. Do you believe this is a moment that, that crystallizes that for your party? Because it doesn't seem like the others have, at least not for the Republican primary voters. Yeah, this one feels different, right? I, I think, you know, I, I'm anxious to see the the, the the indictment. It sounds like there's 10 plus folks that are going to be mentioned uh, in this indictment. I, I think there's going to be a lot of story behind that, right? Who got indicted, who didn't get indicted, who maybe cut a deal, uh, which which elements they indicted, uh, what crimes. I mean, there's going to be a lot to have here, but this is this feels different. Uh, you know, what Donald Trump did is did his most damage in Georgia. Uh, he sucked the soul out of the Republican Party here. Uh, he sucked the morality out of the Republican Party, the fiscal responsibility out of the Republican Party. He's, he, he sucked our winning percentage out of the Republican Party. He's taken everything from us, and it is our turn to take it back, right? It's our turn to win elections based on the policies that we think we're better on. This is the prime spot for us to take Joe Biden to the woodshed and call him out for not running the border right, not protecting our communities, not putting our best foot forward internationally. These are our moments in time. But if we make this about the three-ring circus of Donald Trump, we will lose, lose, and lose again. You make a good point that th this isn't just about Trump. I mean, there are several other names that we expect to be to be in here, including, I mean, some pretty prominent members of your party in that state, potentially. Do you expect to see some Georgia Republicans that you're used to working with potentially in this in this list of indictments when we find out the names? 
Yeah, I mean, certainly wait and see the names, but all along I have certainly, you know, anticipated seeing several folks. I mean, look, the, this list of fake electors uh, is is members of the Republican Party, some elected folks, uh, some successful business owners. I mean, this is just a, a, a wide swath of, of who the Republican Party should have looked like. Uh, and, and they got sucked in. And, and I think it's going to be interesting to watch this case play out. Some folks showed up into those into that fake elector room because the sitting president or or some official told him it was the right thing to do. And some folks showed up because it was, you know, a sinister plot. Uh, it'll take time to unpack who is who. Uh, but then, you know, even these fake hearings in the Senate. Right. I mean, this was just this was all about creating enough theater to, to take a little grass fire and turn it into a forest fire. That's what this was about each and every day, was taking these little notions, these little tweets, these little, you know, kind of blips on the radar and turning them into something that, that was supposed to be reality. It's taken two and a half years, but I, I'm certain to tell you that's going to unwind and change directions. You weren't actually even supposed to testify until tomorrow morning, you said, and then something changed. You were asked to come in earlier. I mean, what, is, what does that say to you about how quickly the district attorney was moving here? Yeah, I wasn't behind the scenes. I just answered the answered the call and, and reported uh, on a, on a shorter timeline. Uh, could not be any any more grateful for the respect of the the, the law enforcement officers. I mean, there's just heavy heavy security. Uh, everybody was doing their job, and uh, also the district attorney's office was was uh, uh, very kind and cordial and, and navigated us through what was what was certainly a difficult day. Do you think the former president sees the difference in what could potentially be this indictment with? The federal indictments he's facing. I mean, we've talked to to sources in his world who have said he sees the 2024 run as legal insulation for that. But but Georgia would be a very different case. He wouldn't be able to to presumably pardon himself, for example, if he if he got reelected. Yeah, the one tool Donald Trump doesn't have with him anymore, for the most part, is that most folks aren't attracted to wanting to be in his cool kids club anymore, right? If I looked at kind of the shrapnel flying around in the post-2020 election, there was a lot of these elected you know, state senators and local county officials. I mean, it's all an opportunity to buddy up with the president of the United States, whether he was calling them or texting them or somebody in his, in his inner circle. So they, they, they gravitated towards the cool kids club. Well, I've got to imagine a number of those folks aren't very attracted by that anymore, right? Am I going to go spend time in jail or tell the truth? My guess is they're going to gravitate towards the truth. And so that, uh, that's certainly going to work against him. And look, there's, there's no doubt about where I've been on, on this. Two things were, were certain on all of this stuff. It felt so coordinated, right? But it also felt sloppy. And to me, that's probably a bad recipe for somebody that's, uh, that's in this position. But... You look at this and the bigger picture of this and what you've just said about what you believe elected Republicans and high-ranking Republicans you feel need to say specifically about this. I mean, what does it say if they don't, if this indictment does happen and Trump's name is on that and he does still become your party's nominee for, for 2024? What does that say about your party? Yeah, it says they're weak. I, I think any candidate at this point in the game that doesn't call somebody out for having multiple state and federal indictments against them and all of the other shrapnel that's flown around Donald Trump, all the losing records that's, that's gravitated towards Donald Trump, um, it, they're, they're weak, right? Every single candidate with an R next to their name running for president ought to right now step out and say, you know what, Donald Trump, it's time for him to step down. For the good of the country, the best thing for you to do is to step out of this race and let somebody else step up to the plate. I think we ought to have U.S. senators ought to do that. Republican governors ought to do that. Influential folks, the biggest donors in the, in, the, in the country ought to do that. We need to hold this man accountable so we not only can get our party back, but so we can get our country back, right? If we make this about 
the, the issues. If we go into 2024 and make this specifically about the issues, we make it about the border, we make it about the military, we make it about education, we make it about the economy. Republicans will win up and down the ballots from coast to coast. If we make it about the three-ring circus called Donald Trump, we will lose, lose, and lose again and continue losing. Jeff Duncan, you testified for over an hour today. Thanks for joining us tonight. Anderson, back to you. Caitlin, thanks so much. Senator Sir Murray is outside the courthouse in Atlanta with more on what the rest of the, might, of the night might look like. Sir, what are you hearing? Well, look, we obviously want to know when we are going to know what is in these indictments and if we could hear from the Fulton County District Attorney. We are learning that she is still expected to make public statements this evening. She's likely to hold a press conference, but that that is not going to happen until these indictments are processed. We're told that that could take one to three hours. So we're still in this waiting game to see how long it's actually going to take the clerk's office to process these indictments, to make them available publicly. And then after that happens, again, one to three hours from now, uh, we are expecting the Fulton County District Attorney to make public statements. We should note the one to three hour clock, we're told, did start when the clerk left Judge McBurney's courtroom and started heading uh, down to the clerk's office. Your producers tell me that that was at, I believe, nine o'clock and, and 38 seconds. So we're already a little bit into that countdown. We'll see how quickly that they can actually process this through the clerk's office and when we may hear something publicly. Sir, you want to get out of there, don't you? <laughs> no, I want to stay here all night. It's finally not 95 degrees. It's actually very nice out here now. It's a pretty broad range of time, though, one to three hours. Um, any reason for such a huge window? You know, it's a little unclear to me why there would be such a large window, other than obviously they want to make sure that they do this by the book. I think you talked a little bit earlier about a document that Reuters had reported uh, was posted erroneously, potentially related to this case that the clerk's office disavowed as not an official document earlier today. So I think that they want to be very painstaking in how they process this to make sure it's done correctly, stamped officially, especially after all we've seen earlier today. All right. Well, uh, let us know when you hear something from the courthouse. joined by CNN uh, political commentator Alyssa Far Griffin, a White House communications director for the former president. Back with us also, senior political commentator, former Republican Congressman Adam Kinzinger, political commentator Van Jones, former special advisor President Obama, senior legal analyst Ellie Honig, and former U.S. attorney Michael Moore. So, Michael, you hear the worst case scenario. In the, I mean, is that it'll take three hours until the documents are made public? Why would it take so long? Well, it, it normally would not. I mean, I, I think this is just the belt and suspenders approach, uh, given especially that there was sort of this misfiling that appeared on, on the clerk's site earlier today. So um, they're, they're just making sure they've got everything done, that there are no uh, technical errors, no clerical errors out there that need to be corrected. They can't do anything to change the vote of the grand jury at this point. Uh, but this is just about making sure that the administrative process is done properly, and they know that there will be uh, a, a litany of folks that want a copy of this. And I, I imagine they're expecting that as well. So um, nothing particularly unusual, except this is an unusual case. It should not t typically take this long and would not. But again, I think they're just making sure they've got everything. Do you have any read on, given Phony Willis's history, what kind of, how specific these indictments may be? Are they speaking indictments? I mean, what are what are you expecting? I think she'll try to tell the story in the indictment. You know, she gave a press interview one time where she really said, well, the people want to know what happened. So it wouldn't surprise me to see that. And I 
And I wouldn't be surprised either to see that this is a single indictment with a lot of defendants named in the document, maybe 10 defendants. So 10 people were indicted. Uh, that, that's very possible because, again, especially if you're talking about a RICO case where she's naming several people, she's talking about this scheme. And remember that RICO really is just being able to talk about everybody's dirty laundry and not just one defendant's problems and the allegations against that one defendant. I mean, you get to get soiled up by everybody that, you know, who was part of your corrupt organization. And so that that's why I think there'll be much detail here. She probably remembers that Alvin Bragg was criticized uh, for the New York case when it first came out, that it was not detailed enough. And certainly she's had the time to prepare and to, to give a, a, a very detailed indictment, given the time she spent both with the special purpose grand jury and the intervening time as she's led up to this very, very short and abbreviated presentment to, to a regular criminal grand jury. Ellie, do you agree with that? I do. I, I think we should expect to see quite a bit of detail out of Fonnie Willis. Let's remember this investigation was opened two and a half years ago. We, she has heard from dozens of witnesses in the grand jury, including Jeff Duncan. And I think she has said quite a bit publicly about what her intentions are. She's been careful to toe the line, to not step over. But yes, I'd be stunned if we just saw what we call bare bones indictments that just sort of list the name of the person indicted, the date of the crime and the statutory site to the crime. I think what we're going to see here is a detailed narrative. Part of that is because you want to get the public ready for what's to come. And also, there's a story to tell here. I think Fonnie Willis clearly understands that, yes, she's doing the normal job here, but she's also speaking to the general public and to the history book. So I do expect to see a lot of detail. And Ellie, how are the defendants notified that they've been indictment? I mean, would they learn about it by watching TV or are they formally notified by the district attorney's office before the indictments are, are released to the public? Yeah, let's hope they don't learn about it from us. The way it should work, there's not a rule requiring this, but any practice, any good courteous practice from the prosecutor is you call up the defense lawyer and you notify them directly. You may tell them, we're going to send you the indictment now. But I think what Fonnie Willis is going to do here is she's not going to want to give potentially Donald Trump or anyone else who may have been indicted any sort of head start here. So if I'm in Fonnie Willis's shoes here, what I'm going to do is wait until these indictments get fully stamped and scanned and docketed by the clerk. And then before they become public, I would come downstairs, I would make my public comments. And right at that moment, I would have them sent to the defense lawyers, essentially as I took the podium. And I think we can expect to see some strategic thought into how that goes tonight, because she does not want to have her first words to us sort of preempted by a truth social tweet. Uh, Alyssa, this is the first time we're hearing from you tonight. How, what are you anticipating on the on the eve of literally on the cusp of hearing uh, what the indictments are? Well, listen, I've long said that I think this is the investigation that Donald Trump's most afraid of. Um, and Caitlin alluded to this point. But of course, as it's a, a state case, he does not have the potential if reelected to grant himself a pardon or to wrap up a DOJ investigation. And going even further than that, um, even if he weren't to win reelection, I think that there are some within his camp who think that they could potentially appeal a federal case up into a Supreme Court. This is very different. He doesn't have that sort of jurisdiction in Georgia if he, in fact, is indicted and then charged. Um, so he's been very afraid of it. And I mean, the facts of this case are as clear as day. We all heard the phone call. We heard the pressure campaign. And, and I'm just reminded, I was, I was actually with the former president on his last stop in Georgia. I believe we were in Macon County right before the election was called for Joe Biden. And I remember him saying, like, this, there's no way we could lose Georgia because he did have such a massive audience turned out for him. 
but his his team was just wrong. It was a state that they were not predicting well enough where how close it was. We were paying more attention to Pennsylvania, to North Carolina and other states. So I think he was genuinely caught off guard when he lost. And then he just kind of got into this survival mode. And I mean, the, the, the crimes, the offenses just followed from there. Congressman Kinzinger, I mean, given that, that the former president was the only person indicted by Jack Smith in conjunction with the 2020 election, at least so far, would it be would it be satisfying to you if others who were involved are, are prosecuted in Georgia? Yeah, it's tough. I don't want to say satisfying because, you know, it's but yeah, I mean, after what we saw in the January 6th committee, after, you know, you've seen people out not just carrying the president's water because they can carry his water, but out there really just destroying democracy. I think seeing this, what I call the second tier level of people being indicted, uh, it'll be uh, it'll, I think it'll be essential for democracy. I think it'll be essential for justice. It'll be essential for the defense of this kind of self-governance thing that we've tried to do as this country, because it's saying, yes, if you attack the Capitol, as an example, you're going to go to jail. We've done that. We've seen that. But if you instigate that, if you destroy faith in elections and you do it in an illegal way, you'll be held accountable as well. I just continue, though, today. I mean, I saw, I think, Vivek Ramaswamy's tweet or something, you know, going after this. I have no idea, Anderson, why anybody but Donald Trump is running for president of the United States, uh, unless you're somebody like Chris Christie, Will Hurt, Will Hurt or Asa Hutchinson, because all these other candidates are doing nothing but defending Donald Trump for his absolute utter law-breaking because they're too scared to say the truth. I don't get it. Drop out and endorse Donald Trump if you're unwilling to go after him. He's the front runner. Uh, but I just, I, to this day, and I think once we read this indictment, we're going to be even more shocked at what's in there. And I will be even more shocked to see some of my former colleagues and candidates for president continue to defend him. Van, what are your expectations? Well, I just think uh, it was really moving to see regular people, everyday people, uh, doing their job, uh, walking those documents up to that judge. You think about it. Um, you know, uh, we live in a country where that happens every day. It's just a regular kind of majesty of the wheels turning of justice. But in a lot of countries, someone like Donald Trump would be untouchable, absolutely untouchable. And certainly just everyday working people would have no shot at all to say, hey, there's a line here and you've crossed it and you've got to come in this court and answer. But in our country, that's what happens. And that's what happened today. And so uh, I just felt um, it was moving. Uh, you know, th those, those are just regular working folks. And they put their time in and they saw information. They got evidence. And they could have said, hey, listen, we don't want any of this. Uh, you know, he's too big. He's too powerful. They didn't do that. And so um, my expectation is that we're going to hear from uh, this prosecutor. Uh, I am hopeful that um, after a you know, two and a half year wait, uh, what's on the papers will be strong, will be powerful, will give us more insight that maybe we don't have already. And I'm very much looking forward to hearing what she has to say. What do you expect? I mean, do you have an expectation of what these indictments might contain? Well, I mean, it, you know, in order for this to make sense from just a historical point of view, you already have Jack Smith. I mean, he's, he's put a lot of energy toward uh, this uh, case. Uh, George is a part of the federal indictment. Uh, so I think what you're going to see is a deeper uh, assessment and more people named. I think you're going to have a better sense of all the different players and the different parts 
that's my hope anyway, because this was a straight up conspiracy. This is not just Donald Trump making one phone call. That's what we all think about. That's what we all know about. It was so outrageous. This is an absolute on the ground, multi-party conspiracy to overthrow an election in Georgia and to make sure that the voters in Georgia, and we all know the history of Georgia and how hard it was to win the right to vote in Georgia. How many, how many martyrs we put in the ground in Georgia. You think about a John Lewis, you think about all the things that have gone on in, in Georgia. For that state to be the place where Donald Trump says, I'm going to put those votes in the garbage can because I don't want to leave, leave office. And for, for uh, a, an African-American, let's just say an African-American district attorney to stand up and say, nobody, that's not how it works here. I think it's powerful. It's also extraordinary when you just for a moment reflect on the fact that there was a sitting president going after two election workers, mm -hmm. two black women who were doing a job which they have done before and, you know, a patriotic job, a really important job that they took pride in and really went after them and destroyed their lives. Ruined their lives. I mean, mm -hmm. they had to go into try to hide and they're not people who have a lot of resources and right. security teams. And I think that's what sometimes gets lost in this whole sense of what's going on here. That's what democracy is, Anderson. It's everyday people, it's working people deciding, hey, I'm going to sit here in front of a little uh, a, a cardboard table, a little, yeah. a little, a little a card table, and I'm going to help my neighbors Shane vote. Shane Moss and Ruby Freeman. Yeah, mm -hmm. uh, and, yeah and I'm, I'm going to help my neighbors vote, and I'm going to make sure that, that all these little you know, documents get done and things get signed off on so that everybody matters, everybody's vote counts. And you don't think your life is going to be destroyed for doing that. Yeah, and, and you had Rudy Giuliani sweating hair dye calling them... <laughs> You know, look, like alleging they were drug dealers, yeah. uh, and uh, you know, just—it's stunning that they—they—they they, they, these powerful people reached down and picked these two black women mm -hmm. and just destroyed their lives. And and today, uh, some some people who are also maybe considered powerless in the or ordinary course of things, also African Americans and others, reached back up and grabbed Donald Trump by the lapel and said, "Buddy, that doesn't work in America." And that's the power of today. That's what you just saw. Yeah. Let's go back to Jake in D.C. Jake. Thanks, Anderson. I'm still here with uh, CNN correspondents and analysts, Andrew McCabe, Gloria Borger, Abby Phillip, Jamie Gangel, and Laura Coates. Uh, and something interesting that Jamie Gangel reminded us of is that it was just a few months ago uh, that uh, Judge David Carter, um, who was ordering Trump attorney John Eastman, who is thought to be one of the co-conspirators in the federal charge, Judge Carter ruled that Donald Trump had uh, handed in information that he had swore under oath was true in a Georgia lawsuit, even though John Eastman, according to emails, had told Donald Trump, this information is not true. You cannot swear that it, you cannot swear that it's accurate. And he, signed, he did it anyway. That, that's a crime, I would think. Of course, of yeah. course, right? Signing an affidavit in support of a lawsuit. Would that be a Georgia crime? That would be, uh, that would be a Georgia crime. Could be perjury, false statement to, to of court officials. So, yeah, absolutely. You can't uh, deliberately make a uh, false representation to the court in the course of a civil lawsuit. You know, it's interesting because I've wondered why it is that Georgia has been doing this. When we know that the pressure campaign took place in Arizona, in Michigan, in Wisconsin, in Pennsylvania, uh, in Georgia, obviously. Um, why Georgia? And it, it really does seem that he left 
a lot of fingerprints on the glass in Georgia. Right, right. You know, and I was, I was just reminded that it wasn't only uh, Raffensperger he spoke to in a tape-recorded phone call, but he also called the chief investigator for the state for elections for the state of Georgia. And what he said to her, apparently, on the phone, is that, you know, if you don't do the right thing, you're going to be in trouble. I'm not the one who's going to be in trouble. You're the one who's going to be in trouble. So it was quite threatening to her. And what she said back to him, apparently, was, we're going to get to the truth, Mr. President. That's our job, to get to the truth. So was this uh, a tape-recorded conversation? Did Raffensperger tell all his people, if you ever get these calls, tape-record them? So there, you know, I've got to think that there's a lot of stuff, just like in the federal indictments, that there's a lot of stuff that we don't know and a lot of conversations that were had that we don't know about yet that uh, could really incriminate Donald Trump because he was not shy about calling people. And I think that that is why Georgia, right? Right, The the why Georgia is because Trump himself was the one making the calls and doing a lot of the pressuring. and He was uh, making calls to, like, that, county clerks yeah, in it, Michigan. I mean. That's true. That's true. But, but I, I think that, I mean, I think that just as a, at a minimum, the minimum bar is that Trump needs to have been deeply involved in a lot of this. That was true in Georgia. It was true in Michigan. It was true in Arizona. Um, and then the other part of it is Fonnie Willis. Van just alluded to this. She has decided that she's going to take this on. She's going to take on a former president. Not every prosecutor wants to do that, whether or not the law is clear or not. So I do think that the the conflict between Trump and these prosecutors, particularly the black women that he, you know, he is always at loggerheads with, is part of the narrative here, too. She is determined to get to the bottom of this. And Trump is, I think, particularly incensed by that and describes all of these people as, you know, not just the black woman, but even the black men, as in New York. He describes all these people as uh, political operatives going after him for political reasons. But that's part of the narrative and the conflict of why I think we're seeing this case unfolding with the scope uh, that that it is. And that's why it's so scary in some respects. The second I saw you know, the activity inside the courtroom. A part of me, obviously, somebody who wants to know what's going on inside the courtroom, wants to figure out, wants to see it live, doesn't want to rely on the sketches. Somebody who wants to be in the courtroom is obviously leaning in. But then when you see the fact that this now opens up each of the people within that courtroom to the exposure of the wrath of somebody who's not afraid to use the court of public opinion and bend it at his will in a way that undermines the safety at times of people. You already heard Judge Chutkin in the Washington, D.C. case leading to the culmination January 6th saying, listen, the more you play in this court of public opinion, the likelihood increases that I may move that trial date up. Now, I wonder if this judge will have a similar notion here, but for the very reasons you articulated, Abby, we just saw, although she is a, was a clerk, it seemed, we saw a black woman walk across that screen next to a black man. You've already heard Fannie Willis be called racist by Donald Trump. You've heard accusations that she has been somehow in an intimate experience in relationship with a, with a gangbanger for some reason because it helps his narrative. And so all, her, her security has had to increase. All of this, the idea of courtroom drama and antics, 
presents opportunities to become a spectacle, and it really cannot be. It has to be following the notion that we are watching it all unfold, that a former president of the United States chose Georgia at all different levels to try to allegedly go forward this plan. That's why the RICO charge would be something so interesting to see if it happens. That is the quintessential charge you use when you want to punish not just the ringleader or the minions, but all of the parties involved. And one of the things, Jamie, I asked... uh uh, a high-ranking government official in one of these other states that has not brought an investigation mm-hmm. forward. Uh, and I said, well, wh- how come Michigan is charging its fake electors and your state is not? And, and the top uh, official said, um, they had enough, I'm not telling you who it is, they had enough, in, they had enough caveats in, in his state, yeah. in the phony elector language, unlike in Michigan, where that state didn't feel like they could make out state charges. So I think one of the other uh, uh, variables here is what are the state laws and how ham-handed were these schemers in that state? It seems as though in some states, the people doing the, at least according to this government official, uh, doing the fake elector scheme were a little bit more clever than the ones in Michigan. And who was involved? I mean, was it not just a bunch of fake electors? Was it the president's former chief of staff? who uh, went to Atlanta with him? Was it uh, the former president of the United States? Nobody uh, had a position low enough for the president to say, oh, I'm not going to talk to that person. He talked to everybody. So I I think Georgia, the the evidence just mounted and mounted and mounted. And um, and Raffensperger tape recorded him. There is no question. There is no question that Georgia was extremely Trump and his allies were extremely aggressive in Georgia. We see it over and over again. It's the first Republican to lose that state since 1996. And also, to to your point earlier, (laughs) these were Republicans. You had a Republican governor. Mm -hmm. You had Jeff Duncan with the G, Republican lieutenant governor, Brad Raffensperger, Gabriel Sterling. These were all Republicans. And not squishes either, as, no. as conservatives refer to no. moderates. No. These are diehard conservative uh, uh, Republicans. But could I just, could I just yeah, underscore perhaps. one last thing? Abby, you said earlier the point that Trump was, quote, deeply involved. And I think that's what we have to go back to here. He was at the center of all of this. This all happened for one reason. He refused to accept the outcome of the election. My only point, we should not forget, this is the state of Georgia. Trump targeted Georgia and the parts of Georgia where people of color live to try to disenfranchise them. People like Rudy Giuliani spread racist lies about election workers in order to try to disenfranchise voters. You cannot disentangle that from Fonnie Willis's will and her view that this is necessary and important to prosecute that in this particular state, which is at the heart of, you know, the voting rights movement in this country, that, look, the prosecutor's motivation matters, and I think that's part of it for her as well. We are at just about 10 p.m. Eastern time, seven seconds away, with Donald Trump seemingly on the cusp of indictment number four. Jake Tamper here in Washington, along with Anderson Cooper and Caitlin Collins. Jake, a little more than an hour ago, grand jury in Atlanta handed up 10 indictments in Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis's investigation of the former president's attempt to overturn his 2020 Georgia defeat. 
And Anderson, those indictments are sealed, so we don't yet know who it actually is that they name. But certainly the former president's team has spent the day bracing for bad news. They appear to believe that this could potentially reference him, that his name could be one of those on those 10 indictments that were returned. They've issued a statement just a few moments ago, lashing out at the district attorney, Fonnie Willis, here, something that we have seen the former president doing repeatedly on social media in recent days. They're actually accusing them of election interference, which we should note is, of course, ironic, given that is what is at the heart of these indictments, potentially. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.